Welcome to Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. Here we explore the training and development of America's leaders in the application of air power and the profession of arms. The views expressed are those of the hosts and do not reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. Welcome back to another episode of Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. I am Colin Slade. And I'm Reed Gann. We're your hosts for Commission Ed. Today, we're going to bring you an interview with Major John Rain Waters. He is a former F-16 and Viper demo team pilot. Rain was gracious enough to spend some time with me talking about his experience as an F-16 pilot and especially what it was like being the Viper demo team pilot and why the Air Force has air shows. Yeah. How many air shows have you been to, Colin? Do you remember some of those early ones when you were young? Yeah, I couldn't name them off, but I definitely have pictures in my mind as a as a young kid of you know seeing very loud aircraft raging around above my head. Yeah, they certainly leave impressions. I'll never forget some of those ones that I attended as a young child. And they're pretty good at what they do, trying to demonstrate air power and and connect to the communities that they that they have the air shows in. Yeah. And I don't want to get too deep into what comes later in the show, but we do talk about the importance of air shows. And just like you and I are saying that the impression that those air shows will leave upon the American public and how the air force uses those types of experiences as a recruiting tool and a way to have like a public face towards the civilian population. Awesome. Well, with that, Colin, why don't we turn it over to you and to Major John Rainwaters. Welcome back to another episode of Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. I am Colin Slade, and today I am joined by... Major John Rainwaters. Major Waters. Do you mind if I call you Rain? Yeah, I would prefer that, actually. You would prefer that. <laughs> yeah. Good. Well, why do people... I mean, your last name is Waters, so there's a connection there, but why rain? Why do people call you that? Well, it's probably a few beers before I, I told you that, especially on the podcast, but uh, I'll say <laughs> it, it is part of the you know fighter pilot culture and really the aviation culture to do call signs, specifically in the Air Force. Um, I will give a hint, like it is an acronym. I think some of the guys, uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of creativity that goes into call signs. It's a bit, it's a process to get a call sign. And I would say it is earned. It's not just given. So uh, yeah, I'll leave it at that. All right. That's fair. And, and that's the typical answer that I get from the, the the pilots when I interview them is, how did you get your call sign? And they said, I haven't had nearly enough to drink <laughs> to, to answer that question. Here, here's a hint. If anyone tells you what their call sign means right off the bat, they're lying to you. <laughs> Understood. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. Rain, why don't you take a minute, uh, introduce yourself to the audience. Tell us uh, who you are, where you're from, your your background that led you eventually into the Air Force. Yeah, Colin, thanks again for having me on the podcast. So I grew up in an aviation community, Peachtree City, Georgia, and was kind of surrounded by a bunch of Delta pilots who were all ex-Air Force or Navy. My dad was not a pilot. We, my family had nothing to do with aviation, but he saw that, you know what, that probably would be a good lifestyle and you probably would enjoy it. So it, I would say in the middle school 
time frame, he kind of encouraged me to start asking more questions about flying. I was fortunate that I had a neighbor take me up in a Piper Cub on like a 70 degree day, like blue skies. It was beautiful. And I had the aviation bug. Like I was hooked from that point forward. I was again, very fortunate. I had a buddy who wanted to learn how to fly. His dad wanted to teach his son to fly, but he wanted to teach his son to fly with someone. So we kind of have a wingman. So uh, I started to learn how to fly a Cessna 152 tail dragger. I had my first flight on September 10th, 2001. The next day, obviously everything changed. And so I remember yeah, going out to the airport on September 11th, you know, small airport. And actually, you know, there were police cars sitting at the either end of the runway. So no one would take off or land. And again, this is like a relatively small city. Uh, so seeing that, I mean, that's still etched in my mind to this day. And obviously it was just a really profound moment in so many people's lives. But I knew at that point, hey, I'm going to go serve. And I had already thought about it. That solidified it. And so if I could fly and serve, it was a win-win. So that's really when I started pursuing a path towards ROTC or the Air Force Academy, high school. Everything I did was geared towards becoming an Air Force officer and becoming a pilot. I looked at going to the academy it was probably naive of me at the time and probably a little mature, but I was like, ah, you know what? Like I kind of wanted the college experience. So I had, I had started my application and I was like, nah, it's not for me. That was kind of dumb, but you know, like it's worked out in the end. But again, like my, a lot of my life is just like uh, hindsight. What if I get hit in the eye with a rock? It wouldn't have worked out for me so well, but I ended up, I got a ROTC scholarship at Georgia tech. I had a phenomenal time at Georgia tech. I actually did international affairs. So I'm like one of like four people who go to Georgia tech and don't do engineering. But again, here's the theme of my life, right place, right time, uh, usually with the right qualifications or I'll fake it till I make it. But um, I showed up for orientation day. There was a lieutenant there waiting to go to pilot training. And I asked him, hey, what do I need to do in order to be a pilot? And he said, a good GPA. And I thought to myself, I was like, uh, well, I didn't like calculus too much in high school. I'm sure I'm not going to like it at Georgia Tech. So I, I was fortunate I had a, a non-technical scholarship, meaning I could do anything so I switched my major to international affairs because I was, I'm also fascinated by like Eastern European studies and, and things like that. So I switched there. I got a pretty decent GPA out of it and I got a pilot slot, but there's a lot of hard work in between there. Uh, I commissioned, spent a year and a half down at Moody Air Force Base, waiting to go to pilot training with the 41st Rescue Squadron, which was a great year learning about combat rescue, getting to shoot the gun outside the helicopter, things like that. It was pretty cool. And then off to pilot training. Did a year uh, at Columbus Air Force Base, going through pilot training, the T-6 and the T-38. I was so fortunate and so loved that they decided to keep me for three years <laughs> to uh, teach people how to fly in the, the mighty T-6 Texan II. Uh, they loved you so much and they re recognized that you needed that remedial training. Right, right, yeah. There's a lot of hard air quotes with loved you so much. But yeah, they, they brought me back for another round or two. And then I think halfway through, they got tired of me and they kicked me out the door to Afghanistan to go fly MC-12s for uh, six months, which was kind of one of those lessons learned, which we can talk about later. Uh, I wasn't like super opposed to that idea, but I also wasn't super excited about it. But it ended up being one of those things that was an opportunity that I didn't realize was there. I went, I embraced it. I did really well at it. And it afforded me more opportunities and a lot broader experience down the road. Like I was doing some pretty wild stuff that no, I think guy my age, especially doing a FAPE tour, the first assignment instructor pilot tour was doing like working with British SAS and Australian SAS guys downrange. So I digress, but I did MC 12s came back and then eventually 
wrapped up my assignment at Columbus Air Force Base as an instructor and moved on to the F-16, where I went to Shaw Air Force Base. Right uh, after showing up there, a little group known as ISIS showed up on the map, which was a great time to be a fighter pilot if you wanted to go out there, kill and break things. So was right out the door to go fight in OIR, came back, finished my time at Shaw, and then right place, right time, right qualifications. I heard a call for the demo pilot position. I applied and was selected, and I rounded out my active duty career uh, as the F-16 demo pilot. And I did that for the last two and a half years of my career. Now I am currently a reservist with Air Force Recruiting Service. Awesome. Uh, how many total years of service in on the active side? 12, uh, 12 and some change. Okay, great. Well, it sounds like you've had an incredible ride, incredible career so far. Let's step back just a little bit and kind of work our way through it, glean some lessons learned from your experience. Let's actually go all the way back before you even got to ROTC and speak to the role that your friend's dad or other people in your network, in your neighborhood, in your life had in preparing you and feeding you the idea of being an officer in the Air Force and especially being a pilot. So again, I go back to, you know, I was fortunate that I grew up and I was surrounded by so many people that were in the the military or were pro-military or saw that as a great avenue for a young person to kind of establish themselves in their formidable years. So I was encouraged a lot to pursue that, uh, not to the point where like that was the only thing I could do. Right. But, you know, it's like I was afforded the opportunity to go out there and do it. But I'll say, I think early on, I was good at recognizing, despite what I might say, that I don't have all the answers and that, I, you know, I can learn from other people. That is the one thing that, you know, no matter who you are, if you're me, you know, I don't want to say how many years ago, like plopped down trying to figure out what I want to do with my life and surrounded by great mentors, very easy for me. But there are also people uh, like I just had on my podcast, Daniel Bond Robinson, who is a tornado pilot, first Raptor exchange pilot. He grew up in a poor community up in Northern England. He describes his relationship with his dad as like complicated. So he he is like the polar opposite of like my upbringing, right? But he and I both have the same attribute of we we saw a passion, a profession that we wanted to go out there and pursue, and we wanted to do it well. And so we did everything within our power to figure out how to best position ourselves to get to point A, B, C, D, whatever. And in our cases, it was both to be a fighter pilot. And so I think that is kind of like my biggest takeaway was, you know, I, I sought out the people who had walked that path before me, the guys who had been former Air Force pilots or Navy pilots and asking them like, what do I need to do? Right. You know, and like it's broad brush in the beginning of like, you need to be an officer. You need to have a good GPA. Like you need to be well-rounded. They're looking for leaders. Like, and then, you know, me taking the time to dive down and figure out what specifically is required. What right now is the Air Force looking for? Like, and my, I mean, when I was going through high school towards the end, it was electrical engineers. Like that was the big push. They needed the electrical. And so it, it is always changing. But again, we have talked about it before, like leveraging the network know what what is required of you, go out there and use your resources that are available to you to, to best position yourself to achieve those objectives. How much of it was you specifically 
seeking out this knowledge and how much of it was others feeding it to you and preparing you to be a pilot or officer in the air force? So I'll blanket statement. Like I was not a perfect kid by any stretch of the means. I definitely made mistakes and made some stupid decisions, but nothing that was not recoverable. And I say that because everything else I did, I feel like I had the self drive to go out there and, and get it and figure it out. It's harsh to say this, right? But no one cares more about you than you, right? And I try to help people as much as I can, but at a certain point, like you have to help yourself out. You also have to respect the time of others. That if you're coming to me for advice or I'm coming to someone for advice, like that person is focused on their life and the nearest alligators to their boat and trying to survive and win and do what they're doing. And all the extra bandwidth that you're taking from them, it's a gift they're giving you because they're that's taking away from spending time with their family or doing their hobby or whatever it might be. And so I think, you know, I recognize that at a young age. And I tried to get all of my, I would say the prereqs out of the way prior to going to that person, i.e. if it was, how do I join ROTC? Like I had already been to the AFROTC website and researched everything. I didn't have YouTube back then, but right, like there's, you know, podcasts or anything, but there's so much data that is out there. Try to self-educate yourself as much as possible and then go to that expert to clarify the stuff, the gray, the fine print, the stuff that I would go to a lawyer for if I'm starting a business, you know, things like that. So that's a really long answer to, I think a lot of it was just self-drive knowing that I want to be a pilot. I want to serve. I'm going to go figure out what I need to do in order to get that. And I'm, I'm going to ask for help along the way, but I'm going to be respectful of the people that I'm asking help for so that I get the most out of their time. Yeah. I really like what you're saying here about there, there is a role to be played by the people around you giving of themselves and their time and their knowledge to, to help you along the way. But ultimately you have to take ownership of, of the responsibility to get you to where it is that you want to go. Yeah, absolutely. So my question now is having developed that skill that characteristic of self-drive and self-actualization in seeking out that kind of information, becoming the expert, leveraging your network. How did that then serve you as you went through ROTC and on into active duty? Uh, you know, it, it's always, it's a progression, I think. And everything I did in high school was geared towards getting an ROTC spot and you know, to academy until I said, Hey, I don't want to do that anymore. But I took that same mentality and focus. And when I showed up to ROTC, I've made the next step towards becoming an officer, becoming a pilot. All right. Now, what do I need to do inside ROTC to succeed? And, you know, in the initial phases, it's, you know, show up on time, figure out how not to be the clown, right? With your uniform. Um, and then trying to figure out, I, I don't do you guys still do drill in ROTC? Is that marching still a thing? Yes, it's still a uh, thing. Okay. So like, you know, but it's like marching all those, like, all those, like, Hey, so things you forget, uh, but what, it, pilots don't march. Yeah. I don't understand. Sand in formation. Oh God. Um, <laughs> comical. Um, but no, it's, it's like wh- right now, what, what are the requirements of me to succeed in this program? Being a, you know, AS 100, being a freshman in ROTC, 
the syllabus is there. So it is written down and everything in the Air Force is a syllabus. So you know what the objectives are, the requirements are, figure out what those requirements are and, and then figure out what you need to do to succeed. If it's having the best GPA, then do that, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But know what the requirements are and figure out how to crush those requirements. But as a whole, I think when I was going through ROTC, it's a weird, like it's a really weird vibe, at least it was for our group starting out. Everyone is like super competitive walking in the door and everyone wants to be a pilot or everyone. There is an underlying tone of competition, right? Because no one knows who's going to finish first. And if you don't finish first, you might not get what you want to do and your whole, like all your plans for your life are out the window. But recognizing early on that it's a team effort and that, you know, I, I really saw it as an instructor in the T6. You can go back and forth with leadership philosophy as far as like a natural ability. I think people, there are like natural leaders who just have that innate ability. I think people can also learn that and absolutely everyone can learn and hone those skill sets. But when you walk in the door, realizing that those natural abilities are going to kind of sift themselves out and the guys who aren't great leaders or going to be great officers, like they naturally like self-identify, you know? So if you're one of those who's like a hard worker, who's going to be competitive, you have to look around you and figure out how to make the team better and how to make those around you better and lift the team up. And the sooner you figure that out, that once you all improve, like the chances of you all getting what you want, like increases again, like, and that, that just translates throughout the rest of your entire career, like copy and paste my, my first freshman year group and throw us all in a fighter squadron 10 years later. It's the same concept. We're all competing for the next assignment, weapon school, the next upgrade. You're all competing all over again. But the whole point of it is to go to war and to go kick the door down somewhere and, and beat those guys up, not your own team. So uh, that's a tough lesson, I think, for some people to grasp early on. Yeah, I'm so glad that you made that that connection because that was where I wanted to go next. A lot of the, especially the the cadets and and officers that come into the Air Force that want to be pilots are that type A, self driven, is going to get what they want at any cost, right? But at some point, if they are going to be truly successful and contribute to the Air Force, they have to transition from having that focus on themselves to seeing outside themselves and working with a team. So how was it that you were able to make that transition? When did it happen? When did you make that connection? And then again, you kind of already touched on it, but how has that served you in your time as an, as an officer in the air force? Yeah. You know, everyone wants to do well. I mean, I think I would hope, right? Like I've, I've always wanted to be the best at what I would do. And what drives like personally for me is like, if I'm in a group or if I'm on a team, like the worst thing for me is let the team down. So that's a, I mean, for me personally, that's a really big driving factor. And, you know, you really can dissect this and it's, it's an art, right? Between the, like how the dichotomy of the team is broken up, who's in charge, who's not in charge, like formally, informally, et cetera, et cetera. But I know for me personally, I've always had a drive to just not be, as we call like in a fighter squadron, the wedge. Like you never want to be the guy who's just like, who messed up something really bad the last time, because you're the one that everyone's talking about right now. And it, and it happens, right? But I, I think that's for, 
for me, I've always had that. And I've learned as I've gone along the way, like, I don't know, in the end, like it is, it is a blend and it takes time to figure out how that works. It took a, t- a while for me to figure out that, you know, you're going to be racked and stacked your entire Air Force career from day one of ROTC to your last day in the Air Force. But that is going to happen automatically. And I watched guys who focused on getting racked and stacked and that, that drove every action they did that they typically did not do well. They eventually, you know, sifted down their way to the bottom. So I think it's just one of those things, like if you have that innate ability where you don't want to be the person letting others down, then usually I think you're on that drive, that inner drive to go out there and win. Yeah. And you are a F-16 pilot by training. You you mentioned that you did the MC-12, but majority of your time in the operational Air Force has been with the F-16, which is a single seat aircraft. And yet even with that, you have to work in a team when you're up in the air, uh, conducting operations, you're never by yourself. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So you might be sitting by yourself, but you're working with three, six, 60 other aircraft. And then those aircraft might have more crew on there. Um, when we go into a large force exercise or if, you know, some of the deliberate strikes I did in combat, you know, they're 24 ship, strike packages from four or five different nations. So there is, it is not just you going out there doing what you want to do. You're working as a team. And honestly, to a certain respect, it's, it's tougher to do that, right? It's, it's much easier if I'm sitting in a cockpit next to you. And now I can attest that as I fly a triple seven on occasion, you know, I'm sitting three feet from, you know, the captain. If something comes up, if there is a question, we can literally look at one another and have a conversation right there versus when you're sitting in a single seat fighter, the communication becomes much more challenging as you're managing a fight in multiple radios, trying not to you know, stay in your airspace block, trying to hit someone, trying to employ weapons. So it gets to be really, really challenging doing that. So you have to rely on those leadership skills that you develop to, you know, in ROTC to manage that whole fight to begin with. And then part of that too, uh, you know, and talking about that scenario specifically is communication skills. Like your communication skills are always going to vary depending on the situation that you're in. It can be quite extreme, such as being in a F-16 in a fight to, I would say something that's more mundane where you're talking to a group, uh, your flight, for instance, in a room, right? Like it, it just varies in knowing how to balance that all comes with the experience, I think. Yeah. So I think the point that I want to make here and kind of wrap uh, this discussion up is that it is excellent and important for you to find that drive within yourself to pursue the thing that you want, become that expert, seek out mentors, leverage your network, absolutely crush the thing that you are trying to do, but recognize that ultimately you are doing those things not for yourself, but so that you can enable the team, be it you and your wingman, be it you and that strike package, you and the Air Force as a whole, you are doing those things, becoming that expert in your craft so that you can help the team ultimately be successful. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think the other, the last piece to hammer home, like I tell kids is the runway is short. So if you're starting this, like in high school, like it's going to be a blink of an eye and you're going to be in your air force career. So get started early and get started winning and be a, be a good team member. 
Right. Great. Well, let's talk a little bit more about being in the cockpit of an F-16, especially from the perspective of being an officer in that role. So your AFSC is the 11 Foxtrot. What is the full shred out for your career field? Uh, it's funny you asked me that. I was like, gosh, I don't know if I could tell you what uh, my full AFFC was. I have to look at my OPR. But you know, the breakout <laughs> is going to be 11F. That's what we call 11F you know, as part of the, the fighter pilot. And then the, the last portion of that is going to be the plane you fly, F-16, F-22, F-15, A-10, what, or, you know, whatever it might be. And then we have the commander's prefixes, like a C, a B for a DO, K for an instructor. So I guess to tell you too, like... I honestly never got wrapped up in those type of things. And maybe that's a good thing or maybe that's a bad thing, right? Like my thing is I want to go out there and be the best fighter pilot, be the best officer I can be. And you know, my OPR is probably the only time that I saw my AFFC, you know, over the top. No judgments here. We're not going to say whether it's a good or a bad thing for you to know your entire shred out, but it's a interesting discussion that to know that there are many different ways for you to be in an 11 F that it's not just all 11Fs are created equal. There are many different kinds. So your specific one uh, as an 11F, 11 Foxtrot, F-16 pilot, uh, we'll get into the, the demo team in a little bit. But first of all, explain to me in the audience, why does your AFSC exist? Well, we need people to go kick the door down and go break and kill things. That's uh, the nuts and bolts of it is why, you know, my AFFC exists. And, and the core of it is to be an F-16 pilot. As you alluded to, inside of that AFFC, we have instructors, we have evaluators, but then also, which is not actually broken into your AFFC, but broken down into flight leads, wingmen, functional check pilots, things like that, where they're doing different roles inside the F-16 community or inside the fighter community. And that's based upon the responsibility you're given in the cockpit regarding flying. So you might be leading a four ship. So four other planes, you might be leading a ship. You might be a mission commander. Like you might be responsible for leading a large force to go deliver ordnance or weapons. And it could be multinational. It could be hundreds of planes that you're responsible for coming up with a game plan to go out there and execute the mission for so there's a lot to really dive down and break down into the, the 11F career field. Obviously, to, in order to be a pilot, you have to be an officer. What is it about flying? And you can speak to the F-16 specifically or any of the aircraft that you've flown. Why does that job need to be f- filled by an officer? Well, the short of it is that's the requirement right now. I know there's talk of like enlisted pilots and it could be probably another discussion of like what Rain's personal opinion is of it. But the short of it is that is the requirement in order to be a pilot is you have to have a degree and go do it. My thought, if we look at some of our European nations, we have Dutch exchange officers I've flown a bunch with who didn't have their college degree and were some phenomenal pilots. But for the, I guess, purpose of this, if you want to do it, you need to go get your four-year degree. Well, one nice thing about the the format of this podcast is that it is unofficial. Yeah. <laughs> what we say here is our own opinion and not necessarily the official stance of the Air Force. So I am curious, what is Rain's opinion of why pilots need to be officers? Is there an advantage there or is there something that we should consider going a different direction? I think a lot of people say, hey, you know what? Like, 
with anything, if you want to be a professional, like you want to gain the most amount of knowledge possible about that. I will argue to a certain extent, I, I would agree with that. Now I argue I have both my bachelor's degree in international affairs and I have my master's degree in emergency management. How many times have I used that in the executions of my duties as an F-16 pilot? I would probably argue none, right? And I, undoubtedly, there's definitely something I learned in those degree programs that translated across. But I, you know, I really don't think by me having a degree that I'm a better pilot, I definitely gained more experiences or different experiences going through college and ROTC about how, you know, the system of the Air Force works and, and life in general that probably helped me out. But then again, I've worked with some incredible enlisted airmen throughout my years that would make phenomenal pilots in my eyes just based on the way they handle themselves. And, you know, if I put them in the cookie cutter, like what Rain's opinion of a good pilot stereotypical would look like, they'd probably make a great pilot. It is interesting to, to see where we go. Like the world as a whole is going to have a massive pilot shortage. The Air Force is scrambling right now to try and figure out how to produce more pilots. It, you get into a quality versus quantity argument. And again, I'm willing to go into that discussion as well. But I think, you know, we're mistaken by not really looking at affording people opportunities to be pilots who don't have college degrees. You know, there's several European nations. They go through a military type academy, right? And they get air forced, if you will. Uh, and then they go focus on what their primary job is going to be. And it's a technical job and it's flying planes, right? It'd just be like, if you're going to go be a plumber, like you probably don't need a calculus class, right? I think we figured that out, but you probably need to go to a trade school and you probably need to be an apprentice and go through that process. You know, so I really can say, I don't think my degree has helped me out. Now, conversely, if I was going to be a test pilot, like, yeah, you probably, you need to be an engineer to do that. So I think I'm mechanically inclined from the get-go. So maybe that kind of compensates for my lack of a technical degree when it goes to like benefiting me flying world. Because again, I think I get a lot of that stuff unless you ask me to do some kind of calculus in, in the jet, then that's right out the window. <laughs> I mean, you, you aren't running integrals and derivatives as you calculate the merge or the... Right. <laughs> yeah, I'm just g my face off, just trying to survive. Yeah. That's, uh, but it's funny how that, you know, and that, that was a discussion that kind of happened there for a little while and then it kind of faded away. So, you know, I, I definitely think there's leadership that has a big aversion to it. And yeah, they'll say, yeah, Rain, what does he know? Which is probably 100% valid. But it turns out like, there are people that do it and we do have like army warrant officers who fly helicopters and turns out they fly them just fine. Yeah. So pulling on this thread just a little bit more, take the, the degree away. What is it about being a commissioned officer that helps or hinders your operations within the jet? <laughs> you know, you start thinking about it, it's like, again, I don't think that, to me has made a huge difference. Now I say that with the caveat being again, all the experiences I had going through ROTC, I mean, I cringe and say this, but even like squadron officer school or something like that, like no matter everything you do, you're going to have an experience. You're going to interact with people and you're going to learn from it. And you'll be able to take lessons away from those experiences and apply them 
later on down in life. So undoubtedly, I have taken some of those experiences, probably unbeknownst to me or subconsciously, and applied them in the jet. But when it comes down to it, we're talking flying. Like, where does the core of my skill set come from? It's a year of pilot training, doing that day in and day out. Then another year, basically spending learning how to fly the F-16. And then another six months at the operational unit, sitting in a vault, studying in the simulator and flying and learning how to actually employ and do the mission set of that squadron. So it's very technical in nature to go out there and do that. Now, as you progress, obviously there are, we have all these additional duties. Uh, you know, we don't just show up and fly planes and high five and go home, which would be awesome. It's all the other stuff that has to get done where probably where, I mean, we're absolutely being a commission officer comes into play when it comes to left hand, right hand. I really don't believe that what I did on a daily basis to earn a commission helped me figure out how to land F-16 or shoot an AMRAM. Right. Now, I don't pretend to know the right answer. I don't know that there is a right answer, but I think it's a worthwhile discussion to have about the proper and effective employment of our commission officers and their training and development. Are we actually using that capability, that skill set, that authority of the commission in the right way? I don't know. It may be that we are as effective as we are as an Air Force. You were as effective as you were as an F-16 pilot because you are a commission officer or maybe not. I don't know, but I think it's a discussion that is worth having. Yeah. And, and to be fair, right? So I separated from the Air Force at the point of my career where most pilots transition. So my job up to that point was to be the tactical expert and know everything about the F-16, how to go there and employ it. What you do is you end up transitioning as you move you know, past the 12, 13 year point, kind of do some career broadening stuff outside of the cockpit and then moving into the leadership roles and then going you know, into more of a strategic level thinker as you progress the rank. So that being said, you know, go back to the question, like commission, I don't think it really necessarily translated to make a difference in me executing my duties as 11 F up until the point I got out. That's probably a different story as you progress through the ranks and become, you know, a senior leader and an officer throughout. So that's where you're using more of those skill sets you've, you learn, but again, you're learning throughout the entire process. All right. That's fair. Well, let's talk about your experience getting to and being the F-16 demo pilot. What turned you on to that idea? Um, how did you get to it? What was, what was it like? Share some thoughts on, on that experience. Uh, one, it was an incredible experience, but like everything, uh, right place, right time and roughly the right credentials when the opportunity arose. So I was very fortunate to be able to raise my hand and say, Hey, I would like to go do that. But what sparked my interest, I actually, you know, I went to air shows as a kid and I actually saw the F-16 demo and I saw the heritage flight and I was like, ah, oh, that's pretty cool. Right. But then I never thought about it again. Sequestration happened. All the demo teams went away. I show up to Shaw and I'm going to go down range. And they, this is 2015. And they just announced the F-16 demo team was coming back. It used to be an East Coast and West Coast, but post sequestration, there's only going to be one team and it's going to be at Shaw. So like, oh, that's kind of cool. But I remember Rocket, the guy I followed, he was out there practicing. I was like, ah, it's pretty awesome. Like F-16 raging around base really low. But it was when I got back from the deployment, we had a air show at Shaw Air Force Base. 
And that was the first weekend, like I actually narrated for an air power demo we put on with a bunch of F-16s. And so I was working with some of the air show performers and getting to meet them. And then I had a buddy who was on the Thunderbirds walk around in a super tight flight suit. And, you know, he was saying how much he loved the Thunderbirds. I was like, ah, that's kind of cool. That's all the F-16 demo. I was like, well, I definitely don't have the body for a Thunderbird, but I probably could be an F-16 demo guy because this doesn't require a fitted flight suit. So I started talking to my wife, like, that'd be kind of a cool thing to do. And then again, like two weeks later, right place, right time, an email went out saying, hey, we're taking applications for the next F-16 demo pilot. So um, I threw my name in the hat and I was very fortunate enough to get selected to go out there and, and do it for two and a half years, which is pretty awesome. That is really awesome. What was the schedule like? What was the train up like? What were the, some of the highlights, some of the lowlights? What would you say about that? So as a demo pilot, your only job is to be the demo pilot. You have a team of maintainers and then in the F-16 and the A-10 teams, you actually have three aircraft that are assigned to you. So you're the demo team commander, which I say first, and demo pilot. Uh, so you're figuring out the inner workings of the maintenance schedule, what needs to be done with the jets, how to move these jets, how to move the people from point A to point B. And you're doing that 25 to 30 times a year. So my first year, we uh, did 29 TDYs. And we we did that from March to November. So, you know, a relatively short time span. And we went everywhere from Rio Negro, Colombia, Canada, you know, that's still international, again, with quotes, and then to Dubai. And there's lots of moving pieces with all those. And then, you know, basically every state in between that. So I really like the challenge of the puzzle of making all those logistics work out and working with the maintainers. So I, again, I kind of always said, you know, for me to jump in the cockpit, there's probably about 700 people standing behind me that enabled me to sit in that seat that day. And when you're on the demo team, I mean, every day you're working with the maintainers and you, know, you become a family. And so you're attuned to like their frustrations, their struggles, the tempo and engaging what's going on and the demands that, you know, just everyday maintenance is required. And then let alone every time I go out there and break the jet, how taxing that is on them. So uh, I really enjoyed the people aspect of that and working with the maintainers. Those guys will be my friends till the end of time. And I just have nothing but respect for them because they're so passionate about their job. And loved it. It made what I did super easy and, and a lot of fun. You know, I, it's really tough to say a low spot. There was a lot of travel. And there, so there's a lot of demands and strain on the family. It's probably a double-edged sword as far as having to travel so much. But then also you get to travel and do some pretty cool stuff, which I really enjoyed. Yeah. And, and I would say probably like my you know, most unique challenges was like as I was going to leave, you know, my replacement went through the, her certification and it was, it was removed from it right at the very end. So it was like starting the, the process all over again, which was probably one of the most stressful and straining points of my Air Force career altogether, because not only am I trying to figure out what I'm doing as I get out, but also try to hold the team together and keep it moving forward so that whoever comes in after this is set up for success and not just thrown in the deep end there. So there's definitely... I would say it's uh, it was 98% of all highs and like 2% of lows. <laughs> 98% of all highs flying about 
500 <laughs> feet off the deck, right? Yeah, 500 feet is kind of high, but you know. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> I didn't want to say 50, but yeah. yeah. No, it, the, I mean, the dip, like, I never got bored flying that. It was a lot of work. I'd say, you know, all the fitness watches and heart monitors and things like that I wore throughout, like, average anywhere from like three to 600 calories. I would burn in a 15 minute demo. Uh, so it definitely, uh, help keep the beer belly down, but you know, like nonetheless, <laughs> like you're pulling nine G's, like on a typical sortie, like nine to 12 times, like you're going to pull nine G's and not just like touching nine G's. It's a sustained nine G's. So it afterwards, like the neck and back definitely felt it. I think it took me about six months until after I was done flying the demo to like, not have any neck pain, uh, but I'm sure I'll pay for it when I'm 65 years old. Get get that disability, yeah, right? Yeah, it was worth it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're kind of touching on then the point of the demo team you, that you are demonstrating the, the full up capability of this aircraft by doing those 9G sustained turns, a 15 minute sortie, trying to show exactly what this aircraft is capable of. Can you talk a little bit more to the the broader strategy of the demo teams, both specific to the F-16, but across all of the various airframes and maybe use that to lead into what you're now doing for the reserves? Yeah. So air shows are our biggest touch point to reach the American public. There are so many people out there that will never get up close and personal to anyone in the military. General level probably kill me because I don't have the exact numbers memorized, but I think it would say like 20 years ago, or actually it might be 30 years, uh, nearly half of all Americans had someone in their immediate family that served in the military. So they had someone to look to and say, you know what, maybe that is a path that I want to go out there and pursue. Now that number is down in the teens and it's only getting lower and lower. So we have to go out there and we have to reach people and educate them about the opportunities that are available in the military because we want the best and the brightest and we don't just want to limit ourselves to only the people that know about it. So demo teams afford us a great opportunity to go out there and engage the American public and showcase American air power. But really we're showcasing that American air power and it's really loud and it's in your face. Then it hopes some young person is going to see that and maybe it's going to spark something in them to say, you know what? I want to go do that. And they'll go talk to their recruiter. They'll go look it up online, whatever it might be. So we're trying to get out there and spread the message. And, you know, it's the Air Force doing this. All the services have their various recruiting assets. But again, you know, between, you know, the Air Force and the Navy and Marine Corps going out there with a lot of loud jets flying around, it's a really a great way to go out there and engage the public, I think. Yeah, it is interesting to consider the touch points that you mentioned between the military and the broader civilian public. I mean, we've got air shows like we've been discussing. We've got museums. We've got our media campaigns. You know, they can always you know, jump on YouTube and, and probably watch you flying around on your F-16. Then we've got like Arlington and the, the service drill teams, right? You know, those are the, the things that paint the entire picture of the rest of the military for the civilian population. 
that by their taxes and their political appetite support what we do in the military. And if we get those touch points wrong, then the appreciation and understanding of what we do in the military is going to decline because they can't go to Afghanistan or Syria or pick any other location where we fight and gain that appreciation. They can't get firsthand knowledge, so they have to get it from these other locations. So you were saying that in your reserve gig, you're working that for General Levitt and the recruiting service. Can you talk to you a little bit more what you do in that role? Yeah, so it's kind of a mixed role. So I'm very passionate about recruiting and helping people out, right? I had a lot of people help me out at a young age, so it's a way to give back in my mind. Internally, there are a couple of issues working through and specifically like with air shows and how to like best utilize demo teams and air shows to help recruiting out in more of a strategic level picture. And by strategic level, I mean like the big picture. There's like resistance on occasion to go fly or take demo teams and go fly them in what we call big markets, Miami, San Francisco, Atlanta, Fort Worth. And there's a multitude of reasons for that. A lot of recruiters who are there don't need the help per se, because those markets are already have a propensity to serve. It's already very military friendly. There's a lot of retired military there. So their job, I would say, is easy, comparatively speaking, like not to like make it sound like it's just a cakewalk, but by having a demo team there, it doesn't really like move their recruiting needle. And by recruiting needle, like they're trying to hit a certain goal at the end of the month, end of the year, whatever it might be to get a certain number of recruits. And so when a demo team shows up, I'm thinking more strategic level engagement type pieces, right? I have a demo team. There's a father that sees it. He's got a six-year-old daughter. Hey, this would be a great thing for Annie to go out there and do one day. What do we need to do to set her up, right? Like it's going to be 12 years before the Air Force sees her. Like that recruiter, not to be crude, but like not that he doesn't care about her, but like that's not his goal. That's not going to solve his problem. So balancing that to try and figure out a better, you know, the best way to utilize our demo teams to make sure that we're getting a blend of that. Not saying we're doing a bad job of it, but I have a unique perspective having been on the demo teams and what I saw from recruiters as when I was the demo commander and the struggle I had in helping recruiters because sometimes it was like pulling teeth to you know, provide them a service. So we're trying to fix that. And then also I'm assigned to debt one, which is you know, focused on a rate of diversity sessions and recruiting. So they're putting together some big events and engagements where we're trying to, again, reach people who potentially never had any exposure or chance to be exposed to the Air Force. So there's a lot of different ideas, a lot of innovation that's going on. A lot of challenges that are out there. You know, money is always scarce. It's always limited resource. Time is always limited resource. So it's balancing all those different things to figure out how we can best effectively use the assets we have to help the recruiting effort. And how does your experience as an officer, clearly as a, as a demo team pilot and commander, you're able to, to speak intelligently and, and work effectively in that position. But how does your experience as an officer in the Air Force help in the execution of the, that mission and accomplishing that goal? Well, again, like everything is a bunch of, you know, your collection of all your experiences and 
you know, I have a lot of lessons learned throughout the years from various different things. And maybe it's flying related, or maybe it's from running in task force, something like that, that you just learn from. And then those lessons you can take and figure out ways to apply them. You know, this is something that is completely, not completely different than I've ever done. Right. But okay. I got exposure to air shows. I have exposure to recruiting, but what I don't have, like I have zero recruiting training, right? Like I'm not a professional recruiter. So there's some challenges like in learning that and then figuring out like what the needs of recruiters are to best support them, right? What drives them? What are, what's the desired intent? You know, what do they need and what can I do to best help them go out there and achieve their objectives? And being an officer is all about usually getting thrown into some kind of job that you have no clue about. And it's just go figure it out and you better win, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like I, I, as I look back, like I, here's the, like the worst job I, I think I ever had was a unit deployment manager. And I was like, I don't know what any of this stuff is. And there's all these like logistic software programs and like coding. And I'm like, I just fly jets. Like I have no idea how to load a pallet. And I no kidding had to go to a pallet loading class of like how you secure gear to a pallet to go into a C-17 to deploy. And I tell you what, like, again, no idea when I rolled into that job, what I was going to be doing, but it's just one of those things like, sweet, this is the objective. And this is what is asked of me. Like I will go forth and win. Yeah. The, the idea of having to show up, make sense of the situation and figure out a solution uh, to eventually accomplish the mission is something that I know you have talked about on your podcast. Uh, we've talked about on mine. It's just something that is it's intrinsic to the officer experience is that you're not going to have a manual for absolutely everything you do. Yes, you have a checklist when you are flying the F-16, but that checklist doesn't solve every possible situation that you're going to encounter when you're up in the air or when you're on the down on the ground trying to figure out how best to use demo teams. There's no manual for that. No. Yeah. And you're right. And so, you know, part of that being an officer is what you have to know the regulations, you have to know the rules and the confines within, you know, of, of the game that you're playing within knowing what the objective is, is obviously vital, but then, you know, sometimes like you you have to go make decisions An 80% solution is far better than no decision at all. Uh, and I think that's probably where most people struggle or where I saw it definitely in the flying community. And I think just in general period, but officers struggle, like the successful ones are going to make a decision. They're going to own that decision and then going back when it is appropriate and be like, that was a bad call, but here's the data that I had that maybe led me to make this decision. I should have gone X, Y, or Z, and I could have done that better by having studied whatever it might've been, but yeah, there are so many times throughout my Air Force career that I got thrown into situations that that were not in my job description of being a pilot that I had absolutely no clue about. But again, it kind of falls back to like, all right, what's the you know what's the commander's intent? What are the objectives? What are the rules? Who can I lean on to help point me in the right direction and then go get after it and win? Yeah, absolutely. Now, th this role that you fill in the reserve, is that a traditional reserve or are you on an active status at all? I am a IMA, an individual mobilization augmentee. So 
if you'd asked me in May, if I knew what that was, I'd be like, nope. And if you asked me today, I'm like, I barely know what it is, but I think I know what I'm doing. The reserve, like as I found out, is a very complicated beast. And it, it's, and honestly, it's quite frustrating sometimes when you see, you know, like we're my civilian job and how we leverage technology and there's efficiencies and it's all about time is money. So we're not going to waste time and we're going to value that. The Air Force, you know, it has the, I guess, luxury of wasting time on occasions. Not that we're always, not that I'm just like bash it, but we could do things better. So that is one thing that, uh, you know, I'm always looking forward is I'm rolling into this new job into Air Force recruiting as a reservist, trying to figure out that world. But then also as I go through becoming, going from active duty to the reserves, how can I also make this process better for the dudes and dudettes following in my footsteps? Because that's what it's all about. Right. So if you don't mind, what is an IMA? That's great. Let me Google it real quick. Uh, no, so it is a, it's a reservist who's attached to an active duty unit. So I work for active duty boss and I augment, if you will, the unit there. And there are, is built upon basically like a month to a month of half of orders of like working a year. But that's at the, like the very foundational level uh, in order to have a good reserve year. But then you can also pick up additional days. So I'm actually probably going to do about 90 days of active duty orders here in the near future with the recruiting service. So I will basically just be a full-time reservist working for an active duty unit, supporting their needs. So I work at their behest, unlike I would think, you know, a traditional reservist. And again, mine, mine's kind of skewed because even all the traditional reservists I know in the flying world, they still kind of work a couple days a week to maintain their flying currencies, et cetera. But it's different than your one week in a month, two weeks a year type guy. Yeah. So many possible ways that people can serve, whether it's full-time active duty, whether it's tr traditional status in the guard or reserve, IMA, all of these are located throughout the globe and in all different AFSCs. So the best way to get that information about what you can do as a traditional reservist or individual mobilization augmentee or IMA is to talk to a reserve or a guard recruiter, especially on the officer side. They will help you to identify where those different opportunities are and help you get hired into that position. On that note, Rain, if you don't mind, talk to us. How did you identify this position? How did you ultimately make the decision to jump from active to reserve, knowing that you had a school slot, things were looking good for you, but you decided to go a different route. Yeah. So it was a big decision. You know, I think as, as anyone finds themselves in the spot that they are in their career where they're going to make it, a, a, you know, they're the real fork in the road, they're going to make that switch or make that decision of which way they're going to go. I was definitely there in the past year has definitely been a challenge for me as far as going through the decisions to do that and all the transitions. But for me, I looked at what I wanted to do in life where, you know, what my priorities were and what I wanted in the next, you know, 10, 15 years. Again, that can be another discussion for another day, but you know, elected, Hey, I'm going to separate from the, the air force and go into the guard or reserve. And then I'm going to pursue a civilian career. Initially, I thought I was going to keep flying the F-16. actually got hired at a guard unit. I got hired at a reserve unit to keep flying but then decided I wanted to live in Atlanta. And the the downside of that is 
in order to be a reserve F-16 pilot or guard pilot, you're going to require about six sorties a month in order to maintain currency. And depending on weather and maintenance and travel days, that's going to require about six to 10 days uh, a month at that unit. So if you're working your civilian job, you're going to have to take time away from your civilian job to go up there and do that. I'm flying, you know, for the airlines. So now I'm looking at potentially being gone anywhere from like 25 to 28 days of the month, uh, which just, it, it's not feasible for me to do that, nor do I want to keep doing that. And it was going to be a challenge, I think, to maintain proficiency and actually be a productive member of the team. So with that, I kind of made the decision, hey, I think I'm going to, I'm going to hang it up and say I had a really good run, which I, I think I did, but then look to still serve in a different capacity, one where it's not going to be such a, such a large time commitment for me. So again, right place, right time. I happened to bump into an individual they had actually mentioned that they were going to try to pull me into the recruiting service because they thought I was staying in. But it was, I guess, very fortuitous. We had that conversation because I said, hey, now I'm getting out. We talked about doing a reserve job. So the job I'm actually in was created for me to to take this and do the air show role. So I'm very fortunate. Well, that's handy. Right. Every now and then a blind squirrel <laughs> finds a nut. So I never said I'm the best. I'm just really, I'm really lucky. But uh you know, it, it goes back to the network. Yeah, there was there's a need for the skill set that I had, and then there was the ability to create a position to capitalize on the skill set that I bring to the table, which is very limited. But someone somewhere thinks it is occasionally worthwhile. So, the recruiting service worked to create a billet for me to to jump into and 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 serve and work with them. Had they not, I'd probably still be flying an F sixteen. But I would say my quality of life probably be significantly more challenged just based on where I decided to live with a family and where my guard or reserve unit would have been. Well, uh, there's a few more questions that I'd like to ask you to wrap this up. Uh, First of all, I'd like to give you the opportunity to plug your podcast, talk a little bit about that and why people should, as soon as they finish listening to this one, flip it over and, and check out yours. Yeah. And they should subscribe to both of them, right? Exactly. Yeah. So I started the Afterburn podcast. And again, it kind of comes with a passion of, I want to be able to help others out, right? Whether, you know, if it is the kid trying to figure out what they want to do in life to someone who's struggling with something in their life, and maybe they hear a story from a guest I bring on the podcast that they can relate to. So the Afterburn podcast is all about bringing people together to share their stories and experiences and right now, there obviously it's a heavy aviation focused. Uh, I have a few upcoming guests, you know, who are former army, losing limbs and things like that. So had some incredibly horrific things happen to them, but are absolutely crushing life right now, doing some amazing things. And it's a testament, like when I start thinking, feeling bad for myself, of like how tough my life is right now. Like I have nothing to complain about. So it's all about trying to get you know, stories out there so that it might expose someone to an idea or a profession that they had no idea about, or to give them a little bit of extra motivation to go out there and crush their goals or to help them overcome stuff they have going on in their life. Cause we all have things, we all have hurdles, but you know, we're not going it alone. And there's someone who has either walked that path before you, or there's someone who has gone through something that probably tougher than whatever they're going through at that moment. It might help them motivate, get through it. So yeah, highly encourage our audience to check it out. If you've enjoyed the conversation that Rain and I have had here, 
definitely go over, check out the Afterburn podcast. There's some great content there, as well as they can follow you on your social media platform. So talk to us a little bit about that. If people want to get in touch with you, if they want to ask you about your experience as an officer, as an F-16 pilot, work in the demo team, or now in the Air Force Reserve, bring in air shows all across the country. How should people uh, get in touch with you and see what you're up to? Yeah. So the, the most active account I'm on is my Instagram, which is rainwaters27, uh, again, on Instagram. And you know, I have a lot of my videos and photos up there from my demo life, as well as just some of the cool things I you know, start seeing from other people that are they're creating content out there. So Instagram is a great way to reach out and check out what I'm doing. I also have a Patreon website. So patreon.com backslash the afterburn podcast. And there's some exclusive content on there as well, but then also just some additional content that's available for everyone. Some question and answer sessions that I do with my guest that I put up there that not necessarily going to be put out on any of the podcast platforms. But again, it's more content that is related to the afterburn podcast and things that are going on with the show that if people are looking for, for more, they can find it there on over on Patreon. Awesome. Yeah. We'll definitely link all of these things in our show notes uh, and encourage our audience to check out your everything else that you've got going on. Uh, it's really inspiring and, and awesome to, to see what you're trying to do for the, the, what you have done for the Air Force and what you're trying to do now in your reserve capacity and through the podcast. So, Rain, my final question for you before we get out of here is, what does it mean to be an officer? And there's so much that can go along with that, but... I think in the at the very core of it is embracing the responsibility that you have rested upon your shoulders as an officer. And it can be as simple, as simple as just accomplishing a task to leading a group of thousands of individuals and making sure that the mission is done, the mission is accomplished, it's done in the most efficient and effective manner while trying to take care of your people. Awesome. Well, Rain, we really appreciate your time. This has been fascinating. Again, looking forward to what you're able to do with the Air Force Recruiting Service and bringing air shows to our audience across the nation and really the world, right? Yeah, absolutely, Colin. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on here. And hopefully everyone enjoyed listening. All right, Reed. I'm going to go first here. One of the things that I love so much about the interview with, with Rain is you can hear it in his voice. Well, one, does his voice sound amazing? Yes, he was built for the radio podcast life. The soft, sultry tones. I, I'm, I'm listening. Yes, and if you want to hear more of the, that soft sultriness, if you want to hear more of Rain's voice, please go check out his podcast, The Afterburn Podcast. We'll link that in the show notes. But what I wanted to highlight here is you can hear in his amazing voice passion that he has for this career and this profession of being a, a pilot. And it started so early with him you know, seeking out the information and lining up mentors in, and making sure that nothing was going to be in his way as he pursued the path of becoming a military aviator and a pilot. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I, I had the same, definitely the same sense that he was absolutely completely head over heels for what he was doing. And something that I took away from that is how essential it was for him to, to identify those things and 
it gets back to this idea, and I think we've talked about it a, a few times, so I think it's worth exploring for a few minutes, how important it is for us to determine what really matters to us. What are your priorities and how are those going to drive your decision making? What are your thoughts on that? That's something I'd like to talk about for a few minutes. Yeah. You have to have priorities set up if you are going to ultimately find success. You know, we we often talk about defining success, but you know the the smaller steps along that path are the priorities that and the goals that you set for yourself. And if you don't set them, then somebody else is going to do it for you. We often talk about having to meet the needs of the Air Force. Well, the needs of the Air Force are the Air Force's priorities. And if you don't set those priorities for yourself, the needs of the Air Force become your priorities. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And it's clear in some of the career choices he made and some of the life choices he made that he understood 100% what mattered to him and he was going to go out and get it. And just like you said, if you don't have that vision, it's going to get done for you. And instead of being proactive and, and leading yourself to the life you want, you're going to be reactive and just be given the life that was dealt. I know on what side of that coin I would choose to live my life, and it's certainly on the former. I want to be directing and active in where I go Something too for our our audience, it's okay if your priorities and goals change over time. I know mine have. I definitely started my career with a different perspective on what really mattered. And that's okay. But just, I want our audience to be active and aggressive in their pursuit of that knowledge. At OTS, I talked a lot about it, finding your why and defining that why so that when it gets tough and you have to make these really hard calls, you have these guideposts that you can look to to help you make those decisions. Yeah, and I'm going to make a suggestion here that one of the priorities that you should have in place is yourself. You should be a priority to you. And you could hear that in the interview with Rain that he prioritized what he wanted to accomplish and he prepared himself so that when the opportunities arose, he was ready for them. Now, I don't think he's set out at the beginning of his career to ultimately become the Viper demo team pilot. But because he was prepared, when that opportunity arose, he had the quote unquote right qualifications. He was able then to take advantage of that opportunity and do something that he knew that he was going to enjoy and be passionate about. Yeah. And for those in the audience who may be questioning our loyalty to the core principle of service before self, just know that that core principle, it's a lot more complicated than just doing whatever the Air Force asks you every single time they ask you and ignoring yourself to the detriment of your mission and your airmen. You won't be very effective at leading them if you can't get up in the morning because you've been pulling too many all-nighters. So it's definitely a delicate balance and we could probably go on and on with that point, but it's just, I wanted to make sure that folks know we're, we're trying to strike that balance. And that's something he did because he understood and had identified his priorities and goals. And then he went after him with such aggressive nature. It was fantastic. Yeah. And then just another quick thought on what you should put your priorities on. Make sure that your priorities are focused in things that are concrete, that Again, yes, they can change, but you don't want to be constantly chasing 
fads and trends and whatever is popular at the time. Focus your priorities on self-improvement, on family, on integrity, on service, on excellence, core principles that are going to carry you through the hard times and light a strong enough and intense enough passion within you to do the hard work of preparing yourself so that you can be ready for those kinds of opportunities when they arise. Yeah, couldn't agree more. So another thought that I want to pull out of this interview is the idea of not being that guy. It's a phrase that you hear once in a while. Don't be that guy. Yeah, and if you haven't, you will. <laughs> that, that, that's, that's part of the inculcation of culture, right? You're going to hear that phrase for yeah. sure. Well, Reed, why don't you take a quick minute and, and explain what we mean by that guy? So especially when I think back to my time as a flight commander or a cadet back at officer training school, that guy was inevitably the individual guy or girl, right, who was the only person in the squadron that was late or the only person in the squadron who failed their room inspection or the only person who was out of time in the pass and review at the end of the whole experience. You know, there's always somebody that just isn't quite putting it all together and it's reflected in the entire performance and how the team is viewed. And so there's a lot of pressure and I think both positive and negative, overwhelmingly positive to not let down your fellow airmen and to not be that guy. Yeah. And we often talk about how important it is that you recognize that being an officer is not about you, which is funny because we just barely finished a discussion about priorities and you need to be one of them. But here, here we go. This is us trying to find that balance. You know, it's those funny dichotomies that exist all throughout life that, yes, you need to be focused on you, but don't be that guy. Meaning, you need to recognize that as an officer, you need to be an expert in your craft. You need to be capable in executing the mission and in your leadership functions so that you can enable the success of the team, not for your own personal gain. Yeah. So I was looking at it from the don't be the one cog who's not pulling their weight and doing their job. But the other hand is exactly true, what you just described, right? Don't be the one person who stands up in front of the room and be like, yeah, I'm the only one doing things right. That's also being that guy, right? It's you want to be part of the team for the team's success. Something else, Colin, as we talk about this idea of, you know, being the expert and at the same time not being that guy, we've talked about this a lot, how ROTC and OTS and frankly, the rest of your career, you're going to be individually assessed, but you will fail or succeed as a team. And it's really important. We've harped on it a number of times. Um, I love how he mentioned how as he became that expert, so he would not be that guy, he really had to work hard to figure it out and then go after it. He did a lot of preparation ahead of time. He did as much study as he could so that when the opportunities came, he was able to clarify 
the gray zones and navigate this this challenging environment that we find ourselves in as leaders in the profession of arms. And that is an individual effort. That is 100% individual. There's no one going to hold your hand and say, hey, you know, it's after hours and you've got some spare time this evening. There's that one thing that you didn't quite understand and I'm going to sit you down so that we can figure it out together. That's not going to happen. By and large, when it's go home time, most people tend to go home and your individual progress is up to you. But he couched that all in how you're competing individually and measured individually, but the success is all about the team. And I love that he brought that up. And I really want our audience to understand that because you can do both. You can be individually successful and bring the team along. And when you do that, and there are few feelings as amazing as doing everything you can to prepare, coming to the game, ready to play, and then the game goes your way because your team succeeds. That's a fantastic feeling. And part of that is understanding that it's not just that you need to be preparing individually and putting in that effort, but every person in the team has to do that too. That's where the true magic happens. When each person takes individual ownership of what the team is trying to accomplish, and as individuals, they put in the effort, they prepare themselves, they learn, they grow, they they get better with the ultimate focus of everything being about the success of the team. That's what leadership's all about. And the, and the leader that can communicate that vision to the team as a whole and get them all to take ownership of the whole thing, that is the truly successful leader. Yep. And have, I've been a part of some of those experiences. And I hope all of our audience gets to have that opportunity. I genuinely do. Incredibly memorable and important touchstones in my Air Force career certainly have happened in situations like that. Yeah. Such important lessons. And I want to thank Rain for helping us to draw those out, you know, using his experience to highlight the importance of having a passion, establishing priorities, being a team player, but putting in the individual effort. You know, so much that goes into the successful career as an officer or in any career but especially in the profession of arms. Yeah, couldn't agree more. It's a pretty good recipe for success. That'll do it for this week's episode of Commission Ed. Thank you for listening to Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. The views and opinions of the authors expressed herein do not state or reflect those of the government and shall not be used for advertising or product endorsement purposes. Mention of any specific commercial products, process, or service by trade name, trademark, manufacturer, or otherwise does not necessarily constitute nor imply its endorsement, recommendation, or favoring by the U.S. government. The mention of companies by name is solely for the purpose of discussion and should not be implied as endorsement.